So something struck me one day. It was one of those shower thoughts. And it's the fact that in the 21st century, there are cameras everywhere, except where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Racked and Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. And while they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, their reading and writing lives, and hopefully you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Zaya Tong. Zaya is a science journalist and producer who spent her career in that place where broadcasting and science come together as host of Daily Planet, Wired Science, ZTV, and as a correspondent for Nova Now. We are going to talk about the formative books of her childhood, the ones that had the biggest impact on her as she was becoming a writer, and the books that informed her own most recent work, The Reality Bubble, from Penguin Random House Canada. Zaya, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. You opened the book with a flea circus. That's right. <laughs> which I had no idea was a thing that people actually watched, but it becomes your opening to this book. And this point that you make near the very beginning, among other things, that reality is not human-sized. Can you tell us why you opened with that? With the flea circus? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the flea circus was very, very popular before the golden days of Hollywood. And uh, I just thought it was interesting that this incredibly reviled creature became a micro movie star. And all of these people started celebrating this absolutely tiny pest. And once you started looking at this tiny pest, as early scientists started to do, well, it actually opened up a whole new world, the world of the minuscule. And, you know, as human beings, we have a tendency to think that everything around us is human-sized. But of course, we almost live in a dollhouse world, right? Because we're the size of fleas when you're flying up in an airplane. In fact, you can't even see us from a plane in, you know, and even further from space, we become absolutely invisible. But here on Earth, we're giants. We're larger than 95% of all animals that are smaller than the human thumb. So repositioning ourselves in terms of a sense of scale gets us to start thinking very differently about reality in itself. And of course, I was very surprised by how the fleas were treated. <laughs> <laughs> and that they were celebrities and had costumes. Exactly. But the reality bubble talks about humanity's blind spots that you divide into a number of different categories. And those, those first ones that you, that you opened up with are those questions of scale, you know, that both we have trouble seeing the very small and we have trouble imagining the very large. Why was it important that blind spots get called out? Well, in terms of just scale, just to simplify things, because as you said, there are 10. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that we do suffer from as human beings is scale blindness. 
So we have a tendency to blur out big figures, big numbers, even uh, when you think of, you know, it was actually, Richard Feynman is a famous uh, physicist, was talking about how we used to think of, we, we, we say things are astronomical, right? But if you think about it, there's something like, you know, 500 billion stars in our own galaxy, but our debt is 2020, like the US debt is 22 trillion. We can't even conceive of that number. Our little brains aren't prepared to handle that, and yet we're working in that scale every single day. So we need to be able to understand scale um, because not understanding scale can be quite dangerous. And where, what are some of those dangers? What is, um, how does scale blindness get us into trouble? Well, even if you think about something like, you know, we're talking about however many uh, football fields worth of the Amazon are, are deforested every single day. But if I asked you to imagine 1,000, 10,000, 50,000 football fields, like at a certain point, you're just simply unable to imagine it. The same thing happens with debt. But it was interesting, um, there was actually a study that was done on this in terms of scale blindness that I write about in the book. And people can't tell the difference between, um, you know, even a factor of 10, increasing by a factor of 10. So there's an example where they talked about oil spills with birds. And whether you had 10,000, 100,000, or only 1,000 birds, people were willing to pay basically about you know, the same amount of money to help them. And, <laughs> and in some cases, as the number, the, the, the example you describe yeah. is they were asked, um, how much would you pay to save a thousand birds, exactly. and um, and I, the answer was you know, ninety dollars or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. And then as the number went up, the, the number that people were worth to pay was <laughs> like, well, as for ten thousand birds, I'll you know, I you know, I'll pay eighty eight dollars. Exactly. And, um, and so just and so that illustrates to you the sense of which we just don't envision large numbers well we don't envision big things well. And, uh, you know, on the opposite side of that, it's the fact that so much of the way our society and uh, the way our food, energy, and waste systems are structured is based on things that are absolutely minuscule, right? So in chapter four, when I start talking about the food system, a lot of it is about the quote-unquote jizz which is about the, sp the sperm trade. But of course, until Van Leeuwenhoek actually took a look at his own sperm in the 1600s, we didn't even know that this even existed. And today, the reason why there's 15 times more domesticated animals than wild animals on Earth, like the ratio is crazy, is because we actually started manufacturing animals almost as products and as commodities. And that was once we were able to look at a tiny scale. So those two measures, large and small, actually have a really large impact on the way we live our lives. And so in the structure of the book, you have one section that is about questions of, of kind of scale and the material world. You talk about neutrinos, x-rays, carbon, <laughs> nitrogen, and then you switch and talk about societal blind spots. And you just mentioned the you know the food supply as being one of them. What are some of the other societal blind spots that we have, and what is a societal blind spot? Well, I wanted to look at this reality bubble, right? Uh, the fact that you know when we're living in a bubble, 
we know that you can't see clearly. And this is why I took the, the, the notion of looking at blind spots. But we have individual biological blind spots that we're born with. But of course, together, we don't all have the same physical blind spots, but we have societal blind spots. So something struck me one day. It was one of those shower thoughts. And it's the fact that in the 21st century, there are cameras everywhere except where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. And I thought, gosh, that is so weird. How is it that we're the most powerful species on the planet, but we don't really know how we survive? And you know, I would, and this is the system, right? People are always talking about the system, you gotta fight the system. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, God, most people don't even know what the system is. And as I started looking, not only did we not know very much about where our food came from, but something as simple really as oil, if you ask, and I've been very fortunate, as you know, I hosted uh, Daily Planet for a decade, so I got to speak to brilliant scientists, but nine out of 10 people that I talk to can't tell you what oil is. And this is the most fundamental fuel that fuels not only our cars, but also the global economy. So once I started looking at that, I thought, well, that's quite curious. So I started looking at energy. Then I started looking at waste. And I was shocked there too, not only just waste in terms of our garbage, but human biological waste. As you know, there's an entire chapter about the trade of feces and how feces used to be incredibly valuable. It was traded, you know, in Japan, people would sell bucket loads and, and ship loads of fecal matter, human fecal matter, and in return, they would get vegetables. Right, so I mean, all that these- That it was a commodity worth it trading. It was a commodity and really, you know, part of the argument of the book is that we need to revalue waste. It's the one thing we don't value today that would allow us to have that circular economy. When we talk about bubbles, we're used to hearing about commodities bubbles and real estate bubbles and tech bubbles, you know, places where the value that we place on something has been disconnected from its fundamentals. Um, and so one of the characteristics of bubbles is that they burst. Exactly. <laughs> and so what happens when this one breaks? What's the risk that sits around the reality bubble? I think, you know, so many of us, we're sitting, we're comfortable even here right now with our beautiful light, our wonderful setting in the Kobo offices with our cups of coffee. And sometimes when I'm sitting here like this, I feel like I'm on board the Titanic, right? Because mm -hmm. this all seems very natural and normal. But the, the cracks are already starting to appear in our bubble. I think you can see this every time, you know, here in Toronto, when, when it rains, it, it floods. We're starting to see wildfires that are out of control. There are wildfires right now inside. Siberia, in the Arctic, there are rocking heat waves, the coral reefs, 50% of them are gone. And all of this is happening in our lifetime. And I haven't been around that long. So it's absolutely shocking, staggering, the extinction of species. And this is just to name a few things. Mm -hmm. The world is changing rapidly, degrading very quickly. We are on the brink of a very real catastrophe. And scientists have been telling us for a long time. And they've been rattling our cages, but here we are, we're in our bubble. We can just you know, turn off the TV when it gets to be too much. We don't wanna pay attention to these things. And that is really to our detriment because if we could at least face our problems head on, that would be one thing. But the reason I wrote this book was not so that, you know, it's not to be a doom monger. 
it's the fact that even in the process of writing, I realized that there's a lot of basic, basic stuff that even I didn't know. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what Carl Sagan said in the very beginning, is that we need a citizenry with minds wide awake and a basic understanding of the way the world works. And if we don't have that basic understanding, well, we can't even start to approach what's outside of the bubble. And it seems like in some ways, you know, and you talk about microscopes, telescopes, you know, x-ray machines, you know, essentially different ways of getting views of reality. And it feels like in some ways what you're advocating is that people need the ability to flip the scale of their, of their viewing and thinking from the very small to the very large and back again if we're going to be able to get a look at these complex systems that we rely on and this complex planet that we have to live on. And so uh, training your mind to be able to operate in those different scales becomes a characteristic of survival. Yeah, absolutely, right? Having an understanding that, you know, I mean, a friend of mine was saying that when he read this book, um, my friend Jacob Ward, and he was the former editor-in-chief of Popular Science. And he's right in the sense that, you know, as human beings, we evolved to perceive short-term threats, right? Oh my God, here's a lion, run! You know, we didn't, we didn't evolve to perceive abstract, you know, like carbon dioxide crises, you know, but if we could see that as another example, right? Every year it's the equivalent of 41 Mount Everests and tonnage worth of, of carbon dioxide, but we can't see it because it's invisible. And so we have to find these new ways of seeing. And when we talk about scale, I mean, scale is just chapter one. <laughs> We're still yeah, on chapter yeah, yeah. one, <laughs> but chapter two, is fundamentally about how we're connected to everything around us and how that's invisible to us too. And once we can kind of see the networks and flows and the way that we are, there is no environment, as I argue. I mean, that's such a bullshit notion, you know? And that's why, you know, we have to, we have to start to see ourselves as, the reason why people are starting to see pollution back in our own very bodies, right? While, you know, we're consuming plastic, for example, it's being found in our own intestines now, is because there is no outside. Everything that's outside finds its way back in. As we said at the top, you've built a career around explaining interesting, difficult topics. Where did that impulse first come from? You studied communications at McGill, but I'm guessing that this began way earlier than that. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm that kid, like I, I actually have a tattoo, one main tattoo, it's on the back of my neck. It's not the best tattoo, it's kind of ugly, it needs to be fixed, but I got it when I was young, so whatever. And it's a, a question mark in the shape of a sperm and an egg. And it's the question of life. But I'm also that kid who was always like, why, 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 why? In fact, one of my favorite books growing up when I was maybe five was a book called The Big Book of Questions. So I'm still always asking those questions. And that was one of the things about being at Daily Planet and really to be a science broadcaster. You have to constantly be curious. Otherwise, you, well, you, you suck at your job. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think being able to be curious about many, many different things and then having the blessing of being able to talk to many, many smart people, well, that gave me a spectrum of information that I could start to weave together. That if, say, I was just in, I don't know, I don't know, molecular biology or something, I would just be in one area. So I, I love being a generalist in that way. What were some of the other books from your childhood that got you got you interested in books, interested in ideas, and interested in reading? Um, 
Well, my mom, my mom was uh, so wonderful, is so wonderful, uh, but she was great when I was a kid in terms of just reading me stories every single night. So she would always read me bedtime stories from around the world. So I was always learning about sultans and you know what I mean? Like they were these beautiful kind of Grimm's tales, but the, you know, stories took place in Pakistan. So it wasn't just, you know, I don't know, white kids doing stuff. But I read, I read some of those books too. I was really into the famous five, the secret seven. I don't know if you remember those. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, you do, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, so kids getting together, going off on a little mystery, trying to solve a problem or a puzzle. And then, um, of course, choose your own adventure books, because who didn't love those? I mean, those are amazing. And something about it, Famous Five and Secret Seven that, that always, in retrospect, I found remarkable is parents are not involved in these stories in any way. This exactly. Is, this is, you know, kids going, inventing things, building, you know, fighting crime yes. <laughs> on their own. It is the absolute... Uh, opposite of helicopter parenting. And that's the thing, right? I mean, I just read an article yesterday that China's testing out a new sort of surveillance tracking uh, system on 15,000 children to identify where they are at all times, right? And the zone and the area in which children play today compared to where they used to play, where you and I used to play versus where kids play today, where they can't even leave the supermarket aisle is very different. How did the jump happen into science broadcasting? into becoming that person in front of the camera explaining science to people? Um, I think that what it was, was uh, I started working at Zed, uh, which was at the CBC, which was mm -hmm. just groundbreaking, incredible program. I don't know if you remember it. Oh yeah, as, as, as either ahead of its time or... So ahead of its yeah. time, and <laughs> well, also yeah. from and, another dimension, that's probably. Right. <laughs> almost, almost inexplicable <laughs> if, you weren't, you know, if you weren't a part of it. Exactly. But it was the, you know, the first crowdsourced TV program. This is before YouTube, right? And so um, Al Gore came to study our show, and, uh, and so it, it got a lot of attention that way. And it also got some attention when I first applied for a job working at Wired. And uh, I've always been fascinated by technology. I was working uh, during the whole dot-com era in New York. And so really my foray into science journalism started more with technology than it did with science. So I was more explaining tech and how tech mm -hmm. worked. And slowly, of course, you start to see the blend between science and tech and then science, tech and engineering. And uh, from Wired, I started working with Nova Science Now. And then from Nova Science Now, it became Daily Planet, and uh, so quite a few places. And, and over that time, have you found that, has your skill grown or changed in terms of your ability to explain science to a mass audience? Is that something that you feel like you've developed over time? I think, I think there's an aspect where all you want to do is be clearer. You know, you, you realize you don't want to, it's not about sounding smart. It's not about uh, trying to one-up whoever you're interviewing who's going to be crazy smart anyway. It's really trying to, and not dumb things down, it's finding that perfect balance of respecting your audience and knowing that they have the ability to engage and learn. That's been one of the best things about you know, kids who grew up watching Daily Planet who are now like engineers. Um, and finding that sweet spot. So, and, and also, as you'll notice, despite the fact that my book is slightly about the apocalypse, it's also quirky and quite funny at times, right? It is, because it is. you have to engage people. No, we should people. say, while, while we're talking about the potential death of all life you know, on Earth, you know, not without laughs. So that's, that's, important. that's important for people to, uh, to keep in mind. Why was it time to write a book? 
You know, I don't think I don't think you choose to write a book. I think that you're oh, you're called to write a book. Otherwise, you'd give it up, right? I didn't. I mean, it it took me a year to write the book while I was working at Daily Planet, but it took me five years to research this book, and I was an annoying person for my family going on family holidays because, you know, everybody would want to lie on the beach and just read Vanity Fair, and I'd be like Hannah Arendt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Tell me what you think of. You know, it was always. And especially in the last few years, uh, working in science communication and hearing what scientists have said, I mean, it's dark. It's dark stuff. So the timing was right, but I also knew that I had this thing that was swimming inside of me that I needed to give birth to, kind of like an alien, you know what I mean? And it was gestating for five years inside of me okay. until, that's, yeah. That's my new favorite <laughs> metaphor for, uh, for writing a book. I, when you decided it was time, who did you turn to? Did you, did you read books? Did you call up friends? Did you just roll up your sleeves and say it's it's time to it's time to write a big thing? How, what was the genesis of that? Um, well, I think you know I was uh, at, at Daily Planet. I was sitting and when I started, I was sitting next to my co-host Jay Ingram, who hilariously was writing books during the commercial breaks. Right? Like, I mean, and is incredibly prolific. Yeah, he, yeah. he wrote. I think he's written four books in the time that it took me to write my one book. Right. So, so here I was, you know, really, and then my my next co-host Dan wrote a book. So I and then you know I, my friend Naomi Klein, she wrote three. You know what I mean? People are just writing books. So a, I'm sort of like everybody around me is writing books. What is going on? Um, how hard could it possibly how, be? Well, very hard. <laughs> right. Very hard. Um, but also, you know, obviously there were books that that I wanted to look into as well. So I, I started looking. There, there's a book that I I downloaded called On Writing Well, um, and. And I liked what the author of that book said. His name slips my mind right now. Um, William Zinser. Zinser, yes, that's right, exactly. Uh, I could count on you being the CEO of Kobo <laughs> to know. Um, and he, uh, he talks about every book, the process of writing a book is like solving a problem. And you have to figure out what the problem is. Is the problem that you don't have enough research? Is the problem that you need to stitch two sentences together? Every single one is a problem. So a lot like the Famous Five and the Secret Seven, those little kids, or Scooby-Doo, you're really going in there and going, okay, what is the problem that I'm facing on this page? <laughs> and step-by-step and step moving through it. At the same time, you know, Steven Pinker wrote a book, and uh, although I'm not a big fan of his politics, I will say that he did talk um, about writing very clearly and not being grandiloquent would be would be the example mm -hmm. of just not using big words and things when when you don't have to be as precise as you can, and of course Stephen King wrote a great book. I think many people have looked to Stephen King's book and and simply, you know, he has great ideas. Like he would just store his ideas in a drawer, as you probably remember, and then years later just pull out that drawer that had basically the equivalent of little Chinese fortune cookie papers of ideas inside. And um, it's almost like your own little neural network that sits inside of a drawer that you can you can count on when the time comes. I'm just going to get you to pull your hair back from your microphone. There you go. Perfect. This book is big in conception. It's dealing with uh, you know ideas happening in different scales. How did you synthesize it? How did you take everything from um, you know the way that neutrinos pass through the Earth? to the nature of the surveillance society and and organize it in a way that you can you know that it hangs together as as a single coherent narrative 
You know, that was without a doubt. The reason why I said the, the five years versus the one year of writing, the writing part just wasn't that hard. I was surprised. I was able to do that. Um, the thinking almost broke my brain. You know, honestly, I, I, I would rack my brain trying to figure out how I was going to put stuff together. There was, I remember sitting there with my mom one day with a whole bunch of post-it notes. That didn't help at all. But it was just consistent thinking, consistent, like, it, it, I, I walked around, when I say this alien pregnancy, um, in my brain, it was like five years of, like, I, my brain feels really empty now. <laughs> and there's like a it's wind. all out. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. alien's loose. But it was, it was trying to find those patterns. And I think once I worked out the basic structure, of course, that made it a lot easier. Because then all I needed to do is, okay, I had my 10. Once I had my 10 blind spots and I decided that I was going to structure it in terms of the biological, the societal, and the civilizational, well, then I had something to work with. And as I said to you earlier, that problem solving started to, to take place. Mm -hmm. And for all those little things, they were honestly, the best advice is always either take a walk or take a shower. And I'd take a shower or I'd go to sleep at night on a problem. I'd say, okay, you're gonna wake up in the morning and you're gonna have this figured out. And uh, it was quite miraculous the way that would happen, the way you go to sleep and your mind continues to work. And almost always I'd wake up with the solution. One one thing that I found very compelling about this book is that you you continually root it back to people. I mean, we're talking about big concepts. We're talking about everything from the way that society's organized to how we are able to perceive and not perceive the universe. But you're also introducing us to you know, fascinating people and little social movements along the way. We you know we meet Robert Hooke, who was the you know, one of the first people to look through a microscope. It was a wild and fascinating character all in his own, um, right through to talking about property and landscape by introducing us to the people who founded the Right to Ramble um, mm. movement within the UK. And so it's, I think what was interesting for me going through this is as, as much as it was grappling with big societal issues, big ecological and environmental issues. Um, it was also seeing places where people could cut through boundaries or cut through barriers in perception and mm. open up new ways for us to see. And, you know, it was encouraging to me in the sense that, you know, there are breakthroughs that happen. There are ways that we can, you know, we can punch through some of these barriers in perception that keep us from seeing the wider world. I'm so glad you got that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's what quote unquote progress has always been about, right? People who don't accept the status quo. And a lot of those people traditionally have been scientists who go, hey, 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 you know, no. You know, basically the, the sun isn't revolving around the planet, people. And, um, and it takes some time, obviously, before people get used to an idea like that. We have ideas like climate change that we need to get used to today and also more regressive ideas. You know, if you trusted your common sense like the flat earthers do, well, of course, you and I would look at the ground right now and we would think it was flat. But you need to be able to break boundaries and think differently in order for us to move forward as a species. And we're at that very critical time right now where that needs to happen. But but you're right. There's always those people, those resistors, those rebels. And those are ultimately that's that's who this book is written for. It's for the rebel inside of every one of us. I love that. With this book being such a work of synthesis, uh, 
what were other books you went and looked to as you were trying to figure out how to wrestle this thing to the ground? Well, I think that the books that I was, um, that I was looking at tended to fit within particular chapters. So they weren't, I would say if there were books, if I might say this, that are similar, it would be something like Sapiens, because Sapiens is a book that kind of takes you through history at the way humanity views itself and, and you know, uh, its thought processes, as an example. But in doing research for the book, well, I had to focus on the different blind spots. So one of the books was a book called The Grid by Gretchen Backe. And oh, it just blew my mind apart because as I said to you about, you know, what did I know about oil? Well, God, what did I know about the electrical grid? Which seems at the surface to be the most boring topic in the entire world, but she wrote a brilliant book about it. And it's absolutely fascinating that here we have the largest, most sprawling machine on the planet, really, and on every continent, and we don't even notice it. It's so, so sometimes blind spots, we don't see them not because they're so small, but because they're so big. Right. And you have to really like look at a yoga poster or a missing cat poster on one of those, you know, wooden wooden poles and look up and, and follow that network of trails in order to realize that that we live in a very real grid. And when I started realizing that all electricity is fresh made, it's almost like freshly squeezed orange juice. I was like, wow. So, yeah. So she took me down a rabbit hole that was terrific. And another Another book that you've mentioned as being influential to you was The Alchemy of Air um, yeah. by Thomas Hager. So The Alchemy of Air was, uh, that's my chapter six. Uh, and so that's more looking at, at waste. And I was just fascinated when I learned about the Haber-Bosch process. And I'm lucky because I have an engineering friend. Again, the dullest thing in the world if you're just reading about it on the web because you're like, who the hell cares about this? It's like the process of making fertilizer. But when you realize the impact that this had on World War II, on creating munitions, on creating TNT and feeding all the world and how we went from a population of 1 billion to 7.7 .7 billion in just over a century, you're like, whoa, this story is actually a lot bigger than you might think. And fundamentally, our ability to feed ourselves is what the Germans call making bread from air because the alchemy of air is about taking nitrogen from the air and being able to synthesize it in a factory to make it into ammonia so that we can fertilize our fields and make bread. And um, the story is remarkable. And so I definitely, I definitely uh, relied on that for some of my thinking. To the extent that we are limited by blind spots or that blind spots create risk for us in our, you know, our ability to survive in the world, on the planet, how do we work our way out of those? What are things that we can do that, um, as a society, help to open up that perspective for us? So the biggest edit that my editor made in the book, the whole book, I was very lucky, actually. It didn't, the, the most of the process wasn't very long at all, was the end, the epilogue. Chop, the whole epilogue, the whole end. Here's what you can do now, was cut right out. And he was right, because, you know, while there's a million solutions, uh, most of those are available. I could chat about those for sure for, on end. But that wasn't really what my book was about. There's a lot of other books that are about, uh, quote unquote, environmental or political or social solutions. I just want people to see differently. That's all I want people to do. I just want them to open their eyes because that is the very, very first step. 
So the aliens out in the world. <laughs> I want it to take over. <laughs> is, the, is there another one like, you know, lurking around somewhere, you know, getting ready? Yeah, I'm already thinking of another book. I have a few ideas. Yeah, I definitely have a few ideas already. And uh, but uh, the, the alien's still small. It's just a little seedling. It's just growing its little green arms. It's a tiny baby right now. Fantastic. Saya Tong. Thank you so much for joining us at Kobo in Conversation. A true pleasure. Zaya Tong's book, The Reality Bubble, is published by Penguin Random House and available at www.kobo.com. Go to www.kobo.com conversation to find all of the books we talked about in this episode, as well as episodes from the past. 